0: Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Ethiopia beat back Italy's attempt to colonize it. We'll learn about the history behind Adwa Victory Day. Sergei Skripal wasn't the first Russian poisoned in Britain. We'll look back on the poisoning of Alexander Litvinenko. And the words handmade and cookware don't usually go together, but we'll meet the founder of Terra Clay. She imports handmade blackstone pottery from India. Don't forget you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Chicago's Ethiopian community marks Andwa Victory Day this weekend. It was the defining battle in the Ethiopian War that uh, successfully thwarted colonization by Italy. And it's a big national holiday in Ethiopia every year. The Ethiopian Community Association has invited Dr. Paulus Mielkias, a professor of political science at Concordia University in Montreal, to give keynote remarks on Saturday. He is the author of seven books, 50 scholarly articles he's been teaching for 30 years, and he joins us to give us a taste of what Adwa Victory Day is all about. Thanks a lot for joining us, Dr. Paulus. Okay, thank you. Um, I wonder if we could start with uh, the war itself. It was known as the Itlo-Ethiopian War, the first Itlo-Ethiopian War. Um, What was going on here? And uh, tell us about um, how important the Battle of Adwa was in figuring things out.
1: Well, um, the war starts because, as you know uh, uh, from history, Ethiopia happened to be the longest uh, independent country, uh, with the longest independent uh, country in the in the whole of Africa, northern, south, and uh, the African countries were divided up among the European powers. Uh, the Treaty of Berlin, eighteen eighty five. Uh, so, Britain, uh, France, especially, had big um, chunks of Africa taken over. They divided up all of them, the Belgians included, and the Spanish the Portuguese were there already for a long period of time. They divided up Africa. And the only country that did not have what they called enough share in Africa was Italy. And uh, the Italians at that time uh, had succeeded to unite after being divided for a long period of time in what is called the Risorgimento, that is the unity of uh, uh, Italy. And uh, And after that, they wanted to have a big colony to compete with countries like Britain and France. And Ethiopia was the only country that they could invade because all others have been taken over by the other uh, European countries. It sounds
0: like, correct me if I'm wrong, Italy thought this was going to be a cakewalk because the Ethiopians couldn't come together and all fight together. They'd be broken up into different ethnic groups and, and not come together.
1: Absolutely. That was it. That was what actually drove uh, Prime Minister Crispy, for example, himself said that for each Italian soldier, drilled Italian soldier, okay, there should be 10 Ethiopian soldiers fighting and we will win. That is what he said. And that was the way they believed that. You see, Africans are not capable of standing uh, in a war against Europeans at that time. Uh, But they were, of course, you know, surprised, you see, by that, because within six minutes, uh, six uh, hours, they were completely crushed. Uh, And and, uh, one of their generals, for example, one of their officers, Piano, even said of Ethiopia, Ethiopia is a colossus with a clay foot, you know, as a matter of fact. So in reality, they had very, very low opinion of Ethiopia successfully uh, defending its independence, and they were surprised.
0: Yeah, it sounds like um, the emperor at the time, Emperor Menelik, uh, had good leadership qualities. He also had an empress who had excellent leadership qualities, and they were very good at uh, rallying the people together.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. That was it. Uh, Emperor Menelik was a very, very shrewd uh, king. Even, for example, Berkeley, the British writer who was in Ethiopia, who saw him, who also knew Emperor Johannes before him from Tigray, actually said that if you compare Menelik with Johannes, Emperor Menelik with Emperor Johannes before him, Johannes, he said, is like a child. Menelik was a very, very shrewd person. The way he actually fooled the Italians into going into the war after they tried to fool him with the Treaty of Buchale, itself actually speaks to that. He had spies that actually went and gave the Italians false information. He had his uh, governors of the provinces actually write to the Italians saying that they are ready to uh, defect you see, from the emperor and would support Italy if the war starts, which was not true as a matter of fact. And uh, and they didn't know that you know he actually brought that a huge army, an army of one hundred thousand from Shawa from near Addis Ababa to uh, Adwa, You see, it was very very far, and they were imagining that he might actually field maybe twenty thirty thousand soldiers, which uh, which is their, the number of their soldiers. But he had all that uh, you know army and and. Uh, uh, Menelik was ready because he actually uh, got most of the weapons that he used in the Battle of Adwa from the Italians themselves. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> well, that's handy. That's it. Yeah, yeah. he got it, and then the Ethiopians were extremely well-armed. So in reality, the fighting was like, you know, on an equal basis, you know, on, a, on an open field, if you like. And they, But even then, they thought that they would actually, yeah, as, as you said earlier, it would be just, you know, a, a cake, you know, that, as a matter of fact that Ethiopians could not actually stand against a European army for long. But the Italians suffer like serious losses and oh, are
0: really beaten bad and have to go back and, and um, tell their people at home, and it uh, crushes the Italian government at the time.
1: Absolutely. They were actually feeding false information for a long period of time that they were winning the war against uh, the Ethiopian princess and the Ethiopian emperor himself when he was not actually coming to uh, the north. Uh, But in reality, uh, for example, earlier at the Battle of Dogali, all the Italian soldiers at that battle, it's not a big battle because there weren't many Italians, they actually crawled up from near the the ocean towards the highlands of uh, Asmara, and they were completely annihilated. Out of the 500 soldiers maybe three or four remain. That is the way Ethiopians fight. This is like the the Spartans, you know, the, you actually prepare, you see, from childhood to fight and you go and fight and you die for the honor of your country, your religion, your king. And uh, that's it. that's the way it was. And and uh, Berkeley actually said, no one has ever defeated the Abyssinians. Ethiopia was called Abyssinia at that time. No one has ever defeated the Abyssinians. The, which actually what he meant is that uh, the uh, the Ottomans never succeeded to subdue Ethiopia. The Europeans never subdued Ethiopia. They never succeeded, uh, and so you see the Italians gambled, and uh, you know they were surprised. You see by what happened.
0: I'm talking with Dr. Paulos Milkias. He is a professor of political science at Concordia University in Montreal. He's giving the keynote at the celebration of uh, the Battle of Adwa, Adwa Victory Day, with uh, the Chicago Ethiopian community on Saturday. And uh, the, the battle was the one that uh, where Ethiopia successfully thwarted the attempts by Italy to colonize it. Uh, I was wondering um, you know, a bit more. You were talking about how the Ethiopians fight and there is a um, African tradition of communicating with the ancestors and there there's kind of like a bigger message that that the, that the fighters
1: have in, in mind. Yeah, absolutely that's it. You see as a matter of fact, uh, I was going to mention you know this I'm, I'm going to mention it in the keynote speech that uh, led by this African uh, ideology, if you like, uh, the Ethiopian soldiers were never afraid of dying. If you die, okay, it's like, you know, a celebration. When they go to war, you know, the Ethiopians wear a shamma. A shama is a white clothing at the time when they get married, for example, or when they have got, uh, like, you know, Christian celebrations like the Maskel and the F- Epiphany. They actually wear this white toga, clean white toga. When they go to war, they wear exactly like that, as if they are going to get married. Uh, they they don't try to hide themselves like, you know, say, European or American soldiers trying to wear clothing that would actually uh, make them mix uh, yeah. the environment, exactly. Not, not at all. It's just the opposite. They are ready to actually go and sacrifice themselves, and that's it. And so, when you die, as a matter of fact, you are... Not completely dead the way the Westerners actually believe. You know, my friend uh, Ali Mazrui of Makerere University yep. had actually said, for Africans, it is like changing an address.
0: <laughs> that's what he said. Well, that's an interesting way to put it or think yeah. about it. Um, now, what about some of the larger implications of uh, the Battle of Adwa? there were a lot of people around Africa who noticed this. It seems to have had a big effect on the Pan-African movement. Uh, What was going on there?
1: Absolutely. As a matter of fact, uh, even before the Pan-Africanist movement uh, started, there was what was called Ethiopianism. Ethiopianism starts around the time of the Battle of Adwa in 1897. The, The war was fought in 1896, and in 1897 what was called Ethiopianism actually started. Uh, and and this was more a spiritual movement in Southern Africa, Central Africa, uh, and uh, it, it was religious because they wanted to actually break away from the traditional uh, European churches, like the Anglican Church and so on, which they believed actually advances Western ideology. And they said that Ethiopia is a Christian country, uh, that has been, that had, had Christianity for over 1,600 years. And this is African, and that, that is the kind of thing. And so they even named their churches the Ethiopian Church. So Ethiopianism actually started that way. Uh, so it was spiritual, and it went on. And, and the the, it, the Ethiopianism uh, movement even was the one that encouraged the Zulus to rise up against the British. And they, the, the Zulus defeated the British actually yeah. in that war. Um, in, 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 I think it was 1901, or around that period of time. And then the indebele uh, and the Shona against uh, the Rhodesians, you know, the British who ruled the present day Zimbabwe. They all rose. It was, for the first time, the Africans actually feeling, ah, there is a chance for Africans to defeat the Europeans. Because until then, they thought that, you see, because the way they were, the Europeans are actually telling them they are doomed to be colonized and ruled. But Ethiopia showed that that is not the case. And uh, then the Ethiopianist movement actually went on. And around uh, uh, the beginning of the 20th century, around 1900, uh, the first Pan-Africanist uh, meeting actually took place in London. Uh, and then from there, they started to chart out is what to do, to unite all people of African origin, wherever they are, all the africans in the diaspora the african americans in america the caribbean americans the africans uh, in brazil uh, all over all over the world because africans are like you know, today as you know there are 1.3 billion africans yeah. and uh, so they wanted to unite all of them as a matter of fact out of that movement came for example groups as pan africanist groups such as jomo kenyatta of kenya and Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana, who fought on that basis and uh, ultimately succeeded to bring independence to their own countries. Uh, One of the crowning uh, periods of uh, African ideological movement was when Kwame Nkrumah wrote his book, Africa Must Unite. And in that book, I don't want to go in detail into it, you know, people can actually see it on their own. He argues that if Africa becomes like the United States of Africa, just like the United States of America, it's going to be a superpower. We have everything, we have the population, we have got the minerals, we have got, I mean, anything that you could actually yeah. imagine of. Uh, so, 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 so these people came out of that and then after that uh, there were two groups that uh, emerged out of the Pan-Africanist movement. One was what was called the Monrovia group, the other one the Casablanca group. The Casablanca group was radical. Uh, there were people like Kwame Nkrumah and um, then, you see, there were Tafi Obelewa of Nigeria who were a little more conservative in ideology. So Kwame Nkrumah and uh, Sekuture uh, from Guinea wanted unity right away. If you look at African uh, flags, I'm mean, out of curiosity, for example, you will see that the majority of the African countries that actually adopted Ethiopian flag, green, yellow, and red. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's... So, so that's it. You see, like, you know, they... And, and then... Emperor Haile Selassie actually succeeded to bring the two together, the radicals and the conservatives, okay. In that group, the Monrovia group, and you know, which is like you know led by people like uh, Tolbert, uh, were conservative, more American ide- ide- ideologically, whereas Kwame Krum and the others were left wing, you know, actually. Right. And, and so Haile Selassie actually brought them together. And the organization of African unity was created in 1963, and now it has morphed into what is called the African Union, more or less. Even though, in reality, it's not the kind of uh, unity that uh, Kwame Nkrumah imagined, it is slowly but surely moving towards that.
0: We're talking about the legacy of the Battle of Adwa. That's where Ethiopia defied uh, Italy and uh, beat them and thwarted their colonization efforts, and uh, that's a really interesting piece of the legacy of the Battle of Adwa, and I'm talking with Dr. Paulos Milkias. He's a professor of political science at Concordia University in Montreal. He's coming to Chicago this weekend and talking with the Chicago's Ethiopian community to mark the Adwa Victory Day this weekend. I wanted to go on and, and say something about the second war between Italy and Ethiopia. Italy does come back with Mussolini in the 30s and he really um, occupies Ethiopia uh, through World War
1: II there. Um,
0: this, the first war kind of bounced into the second, in a way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the You know, Benito Mussolini, in his autobiography, actually says that he was 12 years old in 1896 when the Battle of Adwaza was fought. And when he heard, even as a child, he was so ashamed. How can Italy that actually represents the Roman Empire be defeated by a black country like Africa that they called barbarians. You know, they actually called Ethiopian barbarians. And uh, he was angry, like, you know, I mean, it's deep, it was etched on his mind. And uh, when he came to power in the 1920s, the first thing that he wanted to do was to avenge Adwa. And he started to build up an army uh, the battle of Adwa was fought with 20,000 Italian soldiers they thought that it would be very easy to defeat Ethiopians like that, with 20,000 even if Ethiopia has got 100,000 soldiers, but Mussolini uh, said that they made a mistake in thinking that way the Abyssinians, he said come fight equally with us and therefore we have to have a large army so he filled it, and at first they occupied the area of uh, Ethiopia that used to be uh, uh, Maramallash, now Eritrea, they named it Eritrea, Marus Eritrea, Eritreum. And uh, so from there he built up an army and he had an army of half a million, 500,000 soldiers. That's okay, amazing. Against Ethiopia. Exactly. And I mean, for a tiny country like Ethiopia, Ethiopia had a population of 7 million, mind you, at that time. And he had half a million soldiers actually over there. And they had 200 warplanes. They had over 300 tanks, Ethiopia, none of these. And they use it,
0: chemical weapons. Use and chemical then it's weapons, ultimately
1: so. when they couldn't win the war, even with that, because Ethiopians actually were going, as I was telling you, to actually go and fight and die because the Ethiopian kind of fighting is what is called afana. You surround the enemy, you skirmish to actually uh, fool your enemies. And then you shoot, you see, with a gun. And many of them were also horsemen and they would actually gallop towards the enemy and go near them, and then they dismount from the uh, horses, and they would shoot us first, and then after that they would discard their guns, and they would just move towards them with swords, and they would just cut, you know, hack their heads or cut off their their, uh, necks. That was what happened, and so large numbers of them. So so that way the Ethiopians continued even at that time. Uh, in, in hindsight, I think that was a mistake that Haile Selassie actually thought I, that they could do the same thing. as have got to jump in. I,
0: We're out of time, but um, yeah. it's amazing. Haile Selassie then goes to the United Nations and tells them... The uh, League of it Nations. Was, yeah, the League of Nations at the time and yeah. s- tells them uh, it was they came for us first and next they're coming for you. And yeah, exactly. And uh
1: proved to be correct about but, that. Exactly, absolutely. That's why the Rastafarians actually believe that he's a prophet. <laughs> he said that, you see, today it's us, tomorrow it is you, and he was looking at... Mm-hmm. The British ambassador. Yeah. The French ambassador. And, he uh, you was know, right. <laughs> and and they were sitting right there. And that's exactly what happened. That was in nine in nineteen 19- Thirty-six In 1938, two years later, the Second World War actually breaks out.
0: Dr. Paulus Milkius yeah. is professor of political science at Concordia University in Montreal. He'll be in Chicago on Saturday to give keynote remarks at the Ethiopian Community Association of Chicago's celebration of Adwa Victory Day. It's happening on uh, 1730 West Greenleaf Avenue, and you can check it out on Saturday. Thanks a lot for joining us and uh, talking history with us. This is The Worldview from WVEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Ex-spy Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia are still in a British hospital after coming into contact with the Russian nerve agent Novichok. Several countries have joined the U.K. Uh, to accuse Russia of a politically motivated attack against one of their citizens. The case has echoes from the past. In 2006, another ex-Russian spy, Alexander Litvinenko, was fatally poisoned in London. Russia denies involvement in both poisonings and many other uh, suspicious deaths in the U.K. For the program witness, the BBC's Rebecca Kesby shares how the scandal transpired with the Litvinenko killing.
1: Scotland Yard is investigating the suspected poisoning of a Russian dissident living in Britain. Alexander
2: Litvinenko, once a colonel in the Russian security service, now he's fighting for his life. On November the first, two thousand and six, Alexander Litvinenko began to feel unwell. It was the sixth anniversary of his arrival in London to seek political asylum. Every ten minutes he needed to vomit. Sasha started to develop
3: different symptoms, diarrhoea, stomach ache from healthy men.
2: It was just like a absolutely ruined person he'd left russia with his wife marina and young son anatoly after he became a whistleblower against corruption and criminality at the very top of russian politics marina says he immediately suspected he'd been poisoned uh, sasha from very beginning he just
3: said it's a very strange symptoms when he vomited he said it looks like a chemical poison it doesn't look like a food poison because his knowledge from military school, he was very suspicious. And in hospital, Sasha said, could you check me for poisoning? And they looked at us like, we are crazy people, why we need to do this? Sasha explained, I'm a former officer from Russia, and I have a very powerful enemies,
2: and it probably somebody will want to kill me. Marina had first met her husband in 1993, the early years of post-communist Russia, the couple were excited about the opportunities offered by this new country. When I met him first time,
3: I didn't think it's my future husband. He was very shy, not typical officer of security service. He is very funny. When I finished university, it was 1985. I was already involved in a ballroom dancing and I just decided I'm going to work for this because it was some kind of escaping for all this Soviet-style world and I really like it. When Sasha met me, he said it was his dream to have a wife who's a dancer. He was extremely serious about his job. In our relationship, his job sometimes came in the first place. But I feel very safe with
2: him. I feel loved. But the collapse of Soviet systems had thrown the country into chaos... Rapid privatisation and deregulation led to a flourishing criminal underworld, which seemed to permeate nearly every aspect of society.
3: It was crazy time. People tried to earn money any different way. It's so difficult to change from being totally state control in a just in a one, two years. It was a moment exactly when all this morality was just uh, lost completely.
2: Alexander Litvinenko quickly rose through the ranks of the anti-corruption department of the KGB's replacement service, the FSB. But he began to find it almost impossible to prosecute criminals with powerful friends in authority. Sasha worked
3: against organized crime. He was very enthusiastic because he knew his job helps people. But year by year, he realized every time when he gets a certain level he was not able to do what he's supposed to do, because involvement of these people, when organized crime, people from government started to cooperate together. Not for better future of this country, it just for themselves. You know, it's all started
2: to be a very difficult system to work in. In November 1998, Alexander Litvinenko's decision to arrange a press conference in Moscow exposing corruption at the highest levels would change his life.
3: <laughs>
2: Marina says he did it as a direct consequence of meeting the then new head of the FSB, Vladimir Putin. Litvinenko had warned his new boss that corruption was rife, Mr Putin, he claimed, seemed unconcerned. Sasha went
3: to see Putin. He brought some diagrams, how all connected this crime. And Putin looked at this and he dismissed it. And what Sasha said, all this criminality was connecting to people who Putin was involved together in his past. First of all, when he told me they're going to this press conference, I was already very, very nervous. And I said, are you sure you have to do this? Sasha said, I have no choice. We need to be very noisy about this crime. They never forgive me. Now it's only two ways. They might kill me
2: or I will be arrested. Alexander Litvinenko was arrested. After his release eight months later, several death threats, and after Vladimir Putin became president in 2000, the family decided to flee to London. But he continued to criticise the Russian authorities. Then, six years later, this...
1: Doctors treating Mr Litvinenko at this central London
2: hospital say the next few days will be crucial. Tonight, (laughs)
0: Alexander Litvinenko is still fighting for his life in a hospital bed behind me.
2: For days, the British medical professionals were mystified as to what was causing Alexander Litvinenko's severe symptoms. Ten days into his illness, Marina was the first to notice a dramatic deterioration. When I saw all his hair and his shoulder and his pillow, I was
3: shocked. And only one doctor from cancer unit said, but you know, he looks
2: more like my patient. He looks like after chemotherapy. The British launched a full police investigation. Government scientists began to suspect he may have been poisoned with alpha radiation, most likely ingested through food or drink.
0: On the 1st of November, he had lunch with an Italian contact in a Japanese restaurant in central London. On the same day, he met two Russian contacts in a London hotel hours later he began to feel ill
2: despite suffering excruciating pain and struggling to speak alexander litvinenko spent hours speaking to british investigators using all his experience in the russian intelligence service to solve his own murder from his deathbed last few days it was
3: completely difficult because he was extremely tired he hardly can talk he tried to concentrate all this energy to give this evidence, till last moment he was a professional, and he knew what might be important to investigate this case, but it was a torture. Sasha was very tired. he mostly sleep, and when I was ready to go, and I just say, "Sasha, I have to go." Anatoly is waiting at home." And when Sasha opened his eyes, he was uh, looking very upsetting. He said, don't, don't worry, Sasha, I'll be back tomorrow. And suddenly he said, Marina, I love you so much. Um, but it was his last words. I don't know, did he feel he say goodbye to me, but it was what he said.
2: Just hours after he died, test results confirmed that Alexander Litvinenko was murdered using polonium-210. Investigators said the lethal dose was disguised in a cup of tea given to him by two former Russian colleagues at a London hotel. As the highly radioactive substance could only have been prepared in a sophisticated lab with access to a nuclear reactor, the British government accused the FSB of ordering the assassination, which they claim was sanctioned by President Putin. Sasha's life belongs to serving the country. In a good way,
3: you can call him a patriot, because he believed his job is for people. The system, what was built in Russia, killed not only my husband. So many people were killed because everything what happened in Russia now it's about money. We never know what might happen to us tomorrow. I'm trying to live my life every day to feel happy because it's exactly what Sasha
2: wanted for us. Marina Litvinyenko. She was speaking to me, Rebecca Kesby, for Witness.
0: Coming up after the break, we're going to have our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place. And we're going to hear about the fair trade organization Clay. It imports handmade blackstone pottery from India. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. It's time for our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place. And we're going to catch up with Manvi Vayad. She's the founder and owner of Terra Clay, and they make blackstone pottery in northeast India. And it's great to see you.
4: Thanks, Jerome. It's good to be here back. Explain
0: Terra Clay and where it came from. You were originally somebody who was working with traditional arts, tribal arts in India, and you got into the clay business.
4: That's funny. It's not the clay business. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> but I started Deccan Footprints in around 2008 or nine, working with tribal and folk artisans in India. Folk artists, actually, visual artists. I thought that their dialogue, their visual arts, was really powerful for the new generation to understand, you know, to take you back to your roots. While working with them, I would hear the same story that how their arts were dying, that the next generation was not interested in them, and then sooner or later it would soon disappear. While working with them, a group of artisans from northeast India approached me, and actually I was not from the business or craft line at all. Coming from the visual arts background, I gravitated towards folk and tribal arts in form of paintings, their dialogues, you know, the vernacular arts. And so when they actually approached me, I was kind of hesitant to work with them because I didn't know much about them or their handmade crafts. But the background dialogue was the same, that if it doesn't get a lot of traction, or there's a lack of visibility in this, and if soon it would disappear. And I think that's what grabbed me. Actually, it was my husband, Vivek, who encouraged me to go with it, to give it a shot, because I always wanted to work with women artisans. I felt that that was really important to empower them because you see a trickle-down effect really quickly. Women invariably don't take care of themselves, but they would do everything for the family, for the kids. And once you empower them, I think it just spreads it. It helps the family. It helps the kids. It helps the economy. It just helps that. So
0: we've got these women, and they're in northeast India, and they make blackstone pottery, which is really striking and handsome stuff. How long have they been doing this? Where does this craft
4: come from? This is their traditional craft. What I've heard and learned is that women were not involved in this craft for a very long period of time. It was the men who actually made these by hand. It just traditionally, that's the way it's done. It's a craft that they actually offered it to the gods. Women were not considered pure enough to make these. But then these women artisans actually have changed that. They wanted to be the bread earners of the family, and they decided to take this on. So, there are very few families actually doing this. Initially, when I visited Manipur in 2000, late 2016, December, there were just a handful of them. And what I had seen and read, and what I hear from the community, that one time every family member was doing it. And now you can count them in your hand, literally, Mm -hmm. you can count them that there were just four or five families doing them. And out of them, only two of them are more, the women have stepped in, they want to do it, two families. Do they get recognition? No. Do they fight the community? Yes. They pretty much have to fight against the community to do this. When they all go to get the stone from the mountains, they're never informed. They do it all by themselves. They drag the stones all by themselves. And it's a really hard track to do all this. But they don't get the support from the community.
0: All right. When you say drag the stone from the mountain, Mm -hmm. tell us more about this area. Where is Manipur? If India is a diamond, it's the little part off of the diamond to the northeast.
4: Northeast. Touching Burma. And then on the top would be China. So you can see a lot of influence of China and Burma in the community. Most of them are Christians. I think there's a population of about 90% are Christians. They've been converted. But you could see a church pretty much every two miles. Every mountain top had a church. So when you come down to the valley, you see the Hindus there, which is predominantly a Hindu base. But most of the tribal communities are all Christians.
0: And did they make the kind of things that you are selling now with terra clay? You started with teapots, and now you've moved on to oval bowls, casserole bowls. There's a wok. If they're Chinese influenced, they're probably using a wok, triangular bowls.
4: When I started with terra clay, it was just out of passion. So I kind of didn't do too much of my homework, and I did something that I naturally gravitate towards the teapot because I'm a tea drinker. So I said, let's launch it with the teapots because In order to balance off the shipping cost, we had to get a shipment that actually was worth it. It is breakable, so we had to figure out a lot of logistics at the first shipment of ours. And we realized that we made some mistakes. Like when we started up that our shipment was not diverse enough, we should have included a lot more different designs of bowls and cups at the first go. But we learned along the way.
0: A lot of people might not be familiar with how to use a pan that is ceramic. It's something that people don't use all the time.
4: It's the same like using any other pan that you have. You have to be careful just remembering that it is clay, but it heats up really well, and you can saute really some good vegetables and, you know, meat. I'm a vegetarian, so I can't speak for that, but <laughs> we've sauteed a lot of vegetables on it. You just have to be careful that do not put it in a dishwasher. It does not need to be scrubbed, and you just have to, you know, develop a relationship with your cookware. Develop a relationship with like any other, like spend time with it, cook with it, learn what the difference is as opposed to cooking in a nonstick and you'll get the hang of it. But, you know, the cookwares reminds me of coming home, uh, getting the community together, getting family and friends together, and cooking with them as opposed to keeping everything ready. You know, it's a family time. I think food brings a lot of people together, a lot of cultures together.
0: It's pretty cool to think of something that you're cooking with as handmade. This is something a person made with their hands. It's not like a manufactured pot.
4: Absolutely. And that's what I fell in love with. I think we are losing the dialogue of handmade. I remember... When I was young, my mom's constantly knitting or painting, and we're losing that. We're losing making things by hand. And more importantly, it's a traditional craft, right? So it's time-tested. It's gone through its ups and downs, and it still survived. It's still there today. So there's something that speaks about that. And it's about connecting communities. It brings people together in a way that they realize that it's coming directly from the artisans, wherever they are whether it's in India, whether it's in Pakistan, or whether it's in Afghanistan, they're bringing it from there here. There is an essence to it. It is crafted by hand. And we have a hashtag, from their hands to yours.
0: You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and I'm talking with Manvi vayad She's the founder and owner of Terra Clay. They make blackstone pottery from northeast India. What have you learned about the fair trade community and how crafts fit in, how... Pottery fits into that scene.
4: I got introduced to Chicago Fair Trade last year, I became a business member of Chicago Fair Trade, and I realized that there are such inspiring and motivated people in this group. What I learned was Chicago was one of the largest fair trade cities in the U.S. And it speaks DePaul University's fair trade. So there is a movement of fair trade. What we call fair trade is actually making sure that the artisans who make your product, whether it's a black clay, terra clay pot, or whether it's your clothes that you wear or a basket that somebody has weaved, that they are paying living wages, that we are not squeezing or it, we're not taking anything away from the artisans. In fact, we're encouraging them to continue a craft. And that is what is important for Chicago Fair Trade, that people, whoever associated with the craft, whether it is the family that's involved or the community that is involved, are able to sustain it are able to say proudly that they made it and that they're getting paid fair wages. And I think that's really important for all of us who are a part of the Chicago fair trade community.
0: Are there people you think should be more involved in this kind of
4: thing? Absolutely, Jerome. Don't let me start, but absolutely. Fair trade products, yes, they are slightly higher priced. That is because we're really, really careful about the entire process and how it comes to the U.S., whether we are being fair about it but they are made by hand they are handcrafted and that you cannot replace by a mass producer or a mass processed production and that's what differentiates handmade with anything else right you actually have somebody a name a face an identity creating that that's really powerful and it gen- and it comes through in whatever whether you're wearing a shirt or clothes made by fair trade or you're using a black clay pot it comes through. It absolutely comes through. I just wish that organizations would be a little bit more participant in this. We heard about fair trade coffee, fair trade chocolates, but we never heard any organizations, just throwing it out there, like Starbucks. They have such a huge presence, not only here, but in India. And if they would say, hey, we're going to use fair trade products, for example, mugs that are made by artisans, And we're going to use that in our shops. That would speak volume, the message that it sends to the community, to the world around us, that Starbucks actually cares. It cares from where the products are coming. It cares from where the coffee is coming. We want to be associated with a company like that. I think that's a message that is so powerful that it can speak just by this one simple action that they take.
0: So you think big companies should get more involved?
4: Absolutely. It just helps them. So the question is not what we can do for the big companies, what the big companies can do for people all around them. We are eventually all connected. They are connected to us. We are connected to them. What can they do? What can we do to make this more sustainable? How do I put it? Connect people, connect crafts, connect cultures. It's such a beautiful platform that they can provide for everybody.
0: What happens if somebody like Starbucks comes and says, I need 10,000 gift tea sets uh, real quick?
4: I don't know. I didn't think about that. I just, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I would be nervous, but I would say, let's do it. It would probably take a year or two to get this going. We might not do the black terraclay teapots. We might work with another artisan group, which, you know, fits more into Starbucks bracket of unique product line. But we can do it. Absolutely do it. Let's go for it.
0: I noticed that you won the FedEx Small Business Grant Contest. When you were here before, you were just uh, getting started with that.
4: Yes. And I thank you for bringing that up. I want to thank all your listeners for that. I think last time that I was here, I just started the whole FedEx Small Business Grant Contest, and I would made an appeal here, right here sitting, that if if people would vote for me, and they did. So we actually came in the top 10, and I'm really grateful for that.
0: That was fun. I, I voted a bunch of times myself. And so you got a grant, and they helped you with some stuff?
4: It is a great platform. I think today is the last day that you could apply for the 2018 FedEx small business grant. But FedEx has really stepped up. It's just not about the money. you know. That helped me with my production and helping paying my artisans. But you get connected to a community. You get connected with community who are past winners, who know what you're doing, who get to know you. And they've been there or are going to get there. So you can reach out to them, and I never expected that with the FedEx business grant. I thought they would give me my cash, and that's about it. But no, FedEx is going to mentor you. They're a part of your business. They're part of helping you out to make sure that you are successful in your business.
0: This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and I'm talking with Manvi Vaid. She's the founder and owner of Terra Clay. They make blackstone pottery from northeast India. Are you seeing sales from lots of different places, or are you more Chicago-focused? How does it end up working? The website looks great. I imagine people stumble on it and say, uh, well, yeah.
4: Growing pains. We get a lot of online business. That is our primary source of income from all over, actually, U.S. California has been big. New York has been big. People from Dallas have ordered from us. What we realized last Christmas, that we wanted to give people a complete experience when they get a gift. We tied up teapots, like our teapots and our teacups, We tied up with other small businesses of Chicago. Uh, For instance, we get our honey from Noelle, who is really passionate about her bees. She has an apicry, and she's a real advocate for the bees. We got our honey from her, and we started tying with other small businesses to make a complete experience of the teapot that you're receiving. It was something very organic for me. When I put that up for Christmas, I realized that people were buying more gift boxes Uh, They didn't just want to buy a teapot or teacup. They wanted to buy the whole experience. So we started getting our tea from companies that are investing in uh, tea pickers in Assam, India. We got a honey from there. And then we created other small gift boxes by using fair trade products from other companies in India, who weaves beautiful scarves and chocolates from businesses in Chicago. So we say we're getting two worlds together, the handmade global artisans and small business of Chicago. We're getting together so that you can experience a gift. And I think that's about me, too. Coming from India, having roots in India, I realized that I'm connected to both the worlds. I grew up in India, but my community, my presence is here in Chicago. So I wanted to bring both these together, and the gift box was a kind of an amalgamation of these two. And I love it.
0: How's it working out for the women in Manipur?
4: They have started doing a lot of local fairs in India. People do not want to move away from what they already have. And being a clay pot, a clay dish, or a cookware, people are nervous about investing in it in case it breaks. Because in India, the homeowners don't cook. It's usually the servants or the maids who are doing the cooking. So it's just a different setup. The social setup is really different. So they sell smaller objects, like more decorative objects, but they're not actually selling a lot of functional... Ut-
0: Utilitarian. Fun-
4: yes, <laughs> objects.
0: So that's interesting. And but, but their lives are improving because of terra clay?
4: It's still too early to say. I'm being optimistic that I hope we make a difference in their lives. We hope we empower them that they allow other women to get in and craft these potteries. They can actually produce or make things only from Jan to May. And after that, the monsoons come, which is, I think, one of the heaviest hit regions in India. Most of them are actually farmers, so they have to get back to the paddy field. So making pottery is not their priority at the moment. You know, whenever we placed an order with them, they've been optimistic about it. You know, I even heard once that we'll make it, but we don't know where to keep it and dry it and fire it because the spaces are so tiny and small.
0: Is shipping hard?
4: Don't let me start on that one. Um, Last year, we actually got our shipment in December, 14th December. And I think I was absolutely crying. I think that was it. I was crying by the end of it because I was so done with the new laws that India had put forward with the new GST. And it was tiring. The law was introduced in early July. And I remember our shipment was ready to go by the third week of June, and they refused to let it go. They said the new GST law is coming in. We cannot allow any shipments leaving India. So though things were ready in June, we couldn't ship it out. And we waited with all the stuff crated and packed till... November to get clearance.
0: Wow. So it took you from June to December to get it out of it, India. They
4: wouldn't, we like, wouldn't get clear answers how to you could ahead. get
0: You could hand deliver them <laughs> faster.
4: Absolutely. <laughs>
0: Maybe hand delivery is the next <laughs> um, artisanal space. What are your goals for the future?
4: I realized that just working with artisans in Northeast India is not a very feasible project. It's not very feasible for a business because the production cycle is so small We have been approached by another fair trade organization in India who works with other artisans and they want us to design a line of tabletops with them. So, again, I'm always nervous about doing this. But 2018, I would decide whether I would even want to go ahead and jump into that and create a new private line for TerraClay. But some things I'm so nervous about doing because it's, again, breakables. And we've experienced that in the past, how hard that is. But the artisan stories, they're the ones that actually drive me to do these. So something has to tell me, this is it. You need to do this. I'll go ahead and move ahead with that.
0: Man Vivayad is the founder and owner of Terra Clay, and you can check out TerraClay at TerraClay.com and see not just the tea sets and the gift things, but the oval pans, the pots with lids, the woks, the casserole dishes. And thanks very much for joining us again, and good luck in the future.
4: Thank you, Jerome. I really appreciate this. Oh,
0: Thanks for listening to Worldview today. If you want to listen again, sometimes say when the program isn't particularly on, you can. You can go to wbez.org slash worldview and listen there. You can also download the podcast and get the podcast of Worldview. Go to iTunes Store, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts, and look for Worldview and WBEZ, and we'll be there. Tomorrow on Worldview, we are going to talk about the Doc 10 Film Festival. Film contributor Milo Stalik is going to be in. He'll have a chat with a director from Mexico who's brought a film about the drug war uh, in Mexico. He says that there's a hidden genocide going on. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Galilee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance. And thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
3: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.